You're listening to devpath.fm, the podcast about career development for software engineers. Join the conversation at www.devpath.fm or on Twitter at devpathfm. Hey everybody, I'm here with Lori Bart today. Lori is a software engineer and she does a lot of content creation and educating around software development and, and software engineering management. Uh, Lori, do you want to say hello and talk about what you do? Sure. Hi, I'm Lori. Um, I am a software engineer, as Jacob said. Uh, I work for a company called 10 Mile Square Technologies um, and we're a consulting company. So um, what I say is I've worked with other organizations, big, small, um, all kinds of tech stacks, all kinds of structures and problem domains. And I've seen a lot of patterns that emerge. And and so that's where a lot of my kind of engineering management uh, stuff comes from. And then obviously, I'm also a developer. So I like to share um, lessons learned and, and things that I've picked up along the way to help others. Cool. Could you kind of try to condense what you think your favorite thing about being a software engineer is? Sure. Um, I like that there is no limit to what I can do with my career. Um, Mm -hmm. I have, there are so many directions to go. There are so many possibilities. There are so many niches that you can explore. Um, You're never going to get bored. You're never going to be doing the same thing over and over again. And if you are, it's time to look for a new job because our, that's not how our industry works. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's valuable. I think that it it can be challenging for people um, because you have to consistently uh, invest in yourself and grow. But it's also one of the more exciting job fields because of that. And then, yeah, you're not going to get bored. Um, and if you do, there's it's, a, it's an indication that you're probably stagnating. So that is cool. Yeah, and it's and it's absolutely true that it can be overwhelming. Um, and I, I've talked about this. Uh, every so often, but I had a period probably about a year ago where I went into the office of one of my bosses and I said, I can't do this. Um, I'm in quicksand. I keep switching between projects with completely different technologies and not even completely different technologies. I was on a hardware project, a DevOps project, and a front-end project all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him and I said, I just feel dumb 100% of the time. And we joke that Software development is feeling dumb all the time. But the Mm -hmm. reality is that's not technically true. It's feeling dumb 50% of the time or it's feeling dumb for 100% of the time for a week and then using those skills for a month or a year or whatever it is. If you are genuinely always floundering, you're going to get really frustrated and discouraged. Um, And so one thing I like to tell people is you should be constantly learning, but you should be building on your skills or at least have some period where you get to use what you've learned. Otherwise, you're just going to be annoyed and mad all the time. So could you talk a little bit about how you got into technology and writing software for a living? Yeah. um, So I started writing code when I was really young, but I didn't realize that I had. Um, I was in a class in high school that was just kind of a required computer class. And there was this thing called Jurtle, which not a lot of people have heard of, but it's basically this little turtle um, that you can give coordinates and Mm -hmm. instructions to draw a picture. 
Um, and the teacher said, I need you to draw seven letters of the alphabet and I will give you a bonus five points for every additional letter that you draw. I had classmates who took weeks to get that done. And I mm-hmm. had the whole alphabet done within the class period. It mm-hmm. just made sense to me. Um, but I didn't realize that was, you know, development to me, you know, computer science and transistors and stuff was was software and electronics. And I don't know what I was thinking, but um, I went on to college and I was a math major because I'd always loved math. And I had an internship boss. I worked at a political polling center for the summer and had for the year. And she said, I'm only going to let you intern here for the summer if you promise to take an intro to computer science class at the same Hmm. time. Um, And I kind of pushed back. I said, I'm not that geeky. And she said, hey, I spend my entire life dealing with SQL scripts and all these other things that I wish I would have learned when I was your age. You're a lot like me. I'm going to make you do it. So it was Mm -hmm. a gentle forcing. (laughs) Um, But I'm very grateful to her because obviously I, I enjoyed it. I ended up minoring in computer science. And then I went to work for the federal government and I was a program manager for long, large technical problems, which working in the federal space was kind of my dream job, but I hated it. The bureaucracy was too big. I wasn't really in the right role for me. I wanted to do the technical work instead of manage Mm it. Uh, And so I decided to leave and take a leap away from what I had always thought I was going to be doing for my career. And I got my first development job and kind of the rest is history. I've been in two different smaller consulting firms since that time. Um, I've been, you know, programming for well over a decade now and I love it. It's great. Mm -hmm. What was that first job working for the federal government like and the, the frustrations you felt? What's your advice for overcoming kind of that, uh, that desire to be more involved and how did you get into that first software engineering role to kind of scratch that itch? Yeah. Um, I'll be honest, I left that job and I cried almost every day because I felt Mm. like I didn't have any work to do. That was part of the problem. Um, I was in a program that moved me around to different organizations within the agency, but it just hadn't, I hadn't been placed in great spots. Um, And for me, for some people, it's you hate your work and you're miserable. For me, it's if I don't have any work, if I don't have any purpose, I'm miserable. And that was a really valuable lesson to learn. Um, I did what I could. I actually got myself out of the program I was in and I got myself into a new program. And then the bureaucracy um, kind of swooped in. They had just changed rules around what educational background you had to have. And I have a Mm -hmm. bachelor of arts in mathematics. And at that time I was halfway through my master's of science in computer science. But they said that because I had the bachelor of arts in math and not the bachelor of science in math. Yes, this is our government at work people. (laughs) Um, I couldn't be, I didn't qualify. I wasn't technical enough to be in this new role. Um, Mm. So I kind of languished for about six months in this um, purgatory as it were. And finally I said, I'm I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to quit. Um, And so while I was in that purgatory, I had applied to two kind of analytical hybrid jobs that were technical, but management and a little bit more business focused. And no one called me back. Mm -hmm. Um, And I talked to actually a family member of mine who works in software and has for decades. And he said, you know, at this point with the math background and the CS minor and half of the master's in CS and all this stuff, you have enough coding 
to be a developer. And I said, no, no, no. Like I'm not, I'm not that person. I'm not that good. Um, mm-hmm. And he said, no, you really need to apply. So I applied to nine jobs for kind of entry level developer positions um, coming with kind of more of a background than people coming out of school would have. So that was to mm-hmm. my benefit. Um, seven of them called me back. Five of them got me past the first round. Two of them put me in a final or three of them put me in the final round and two of them gave me offers, Mm -hmm. which was just an insane, insane percentage compared to what I thought I was going to get. And I was super lucky. I know that's not everyone's story. And I know coming out of, um, boot camps and even CS degrees right now, it's really hard to get your foot in the door. Um, but that wasn't my experience and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And I, it was amazing to have options and to really talk to so many different places where I could potentially be a good fit. During that experience to a degree transitioning, um, your career almost, did you ever feel like you didn't belong or, or feel that sensation that people usually describe as imposter syndrome? Oh, no question. Um, so Right. Someone had told me that I should apply for a software development position. I didn't think I belonged in that role. Uh, But what was worse was everyone knows kind of the typical programming interviews, which if anyone follows me on Twitter, they know I rant about quite a bit because I think it's completely Mm -hmm. absurd. Um, But the job that I actually eventually took, I interviewed for them and they gave me in person two problems. Um, They gave me a computer and an IDE and they let me Google. So it was a very kind of reasonable technical programming interview as things go. But they asked me to traverse a tree recursively. And then they asked me to uh, scrape a web page and parse out the URLs that were listed in this top 10 list. Hmm. And the traversal of the tree was something I had literally looked up like two days before And the string parsing and scraping of the page, I didn't really know what I was doing, but they said, hey, try these docs. And I looked through the docs and they kind of walked me through it and I I managed to figure it out. And then they had another session where I was whiteboarding, but it was completely conceptual and I had to design uh, how I would architect a system that was controlling an elevator bank, which was really Mm. interesting. I actually really like that problem still. I think it's a fascinating way to think about things. But in my mind, I'd gotten lucky when they made me that offer that those were things that I happened to answer well, and that Mm -hmm. I kind of talked my way into this job. And then I was going to be in the job and they were going to look at me and say, you don't have nearly the experience you need. You don't know what you're doing. We shouldn't have hired you. This was a total fluke. And I convinced mm-hmm. myself of that for both the offers that I got. Um, and it really scared me for you know the first month to two months that I was there that I was just completely, completely out of my depths. And I think kind of in hindsight, yeah, maybe I interviewed slightly better um, than I could have. It, I could have gotten unlucky, but that's the nature of those technical interviews. You get mm-hmm. lucky or you get unlucky. Nobody knows everything. Um, and if you do, you've memorized those patterns instead of kind of understanding how they work. And I belonged there. I mean, I was within the first year, the one everyone wanted to use as their kind of second uh, programmer amongst the mm-hmm. senior engineers. And 
Most of that, and this is why I rant about technical interviews so often, most of that was because of skill sets and personality traits that I possessed that they never interviewed me for, that Mm -hmm. never even came up. They were extra, but they were the things that made me stand out and made me more valuable. Yeah, I had a really similar experience with my first uh, software engineering job, which is why I have a lot of opinions on imposter syndrome. And I have uh, also have a lot of opinions on hiring and interviewing. But one thing I want to ask, it sounds like you kind of got over that feeling of, of not belonging pretty quickly. How long did that last for you? I think it lasted for maybe a month, maybe two. Um, hindsight is what it is. So I honestly can't remember at this point. It's Mm -hmm. been a fair number of years. Um, And I still, you know, I still have moments where I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing in this particular aspect. But I've had so many of those moments of not know, of genuinely not knowing what I was doing, not just imposter syndrome, but genuinely Mm -hmm. not knowing what I was doing and figuring it out. And so having had so many of those data points, I can kind of go back to that in my head and say, yeah, sure. Maybe you're out of your depths, but if you are, you're going to figure it out. Um, and I think that's kind of the, the best way to combat imposter syndrome is make yourself uncomfortable again and again and again and again. And if you always seem to find your way out of it, you probably can again. Um, mm-hmm. That being said, I definitely have my moments. Like I'm a conference speaker and I went through a period of time just last month where I got 10 rejections in a row. That's really high. Um, and I thought to myself, you know, maybe maybe I'm bad at this or maybe mm. I don't belong here or maybe what I want to talk about isn't interesting. And then, of course, mm-hmm. two acceptances in a row came in. So it's just, it's a bit of a numbers game. It's a bit of a mind, sh- mind shift. And in general, we have to look at things as ebbing and flowing and recognize that some days we're going to feel great about our abilities and some days we're not. And that doesn't always mean it's imposter syndrome. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just, yeah, I don't know this thing yet. And that's okay. Yeah, I definitely, I've definitely felt the same way and had the same realization, I guess, that when you struggle enough times and, and come through okay on the other side, you realize it's kind of part of this job to feel out of your depth and that most people feel the same way. And it, it doesn't mean that you don't belong or don't know what you're doing. Absolutely. I actually had a moment earlier this week where I kind of got to look back at my trajectory and be like, man, I've come really far. Um, <laughs> I don't know if people saw this on Twitter, but um, I'm gonna, I've only ever seen his name written. So I'm going to get it wrong when I pronounced it. <laughs> Um, but Yishol, uh posted a image of his terminal during a dev discuss chat where he has emojis at the top of his prompt <laughs> that react to the se- success or failure of the previous command he put in as like a visual, did I do this right or did it fail? Mm-hmm. Um, and he had dot files that he gave people, but other than that, he couldn't really remember how he did it. And he's using bash. I'm using oh my Z-S-H. That's really hard to say. Um, <laughs> and so I said, okay, I can figure this out. I want these these emoji prompts because I'm extra like that. Um, <laughs> so it, 
I found an article that was like, okay, here's where your theme is, just as a reminder. And then I found a Stack Overflow that said, okay, here's how you figure out what theme you're running, because I couldn't remember. And then Mm -hmm. I used part of what was in his dot file, and I changed the emojis around, and I added it to my prompt, and I fixed the spacing for what I wanted. And the whole thing took like 20 minutes, and then I wrote it up as five steps and sent it out and let people have it on dev.2 so that they could do it for themselves. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my goodness, like (laughs) terminal (laughs) bash insanity and like stack overflow and jumping through medium articles and finding what I need and doing all of that in 20 minutes would have Mm -hmm. blown my mind 10 years ago. I would have been like, who is this genius person? <laughs> um, and and obviously, right, I'm still copying and pasting. I'm still stealing things and, and piecing things together. But work harder, not smarter. Like we all do that at whatever mm-hmm. level. And it's just the number of pieces that you can mash together and the connections that you can find and the complexity of what you're building with all of that gets bigger and bigger over time. But beyond that, the fundamentals are still the same. Yeah, so it seems like uh, it's it's just kind of a, a perspective shift to kind of roll with the punches when you feel uncomfortable or you feel out of your depth and realize that there are resources and, and knowing how to find those resources is what builds seniority. Absolutely. And, and part of seniority is honestly knowing what you don't know and mm-hmm. saying, okay, I don't know this and there's someone else who does and I'm going to go find them and I'm going to go talk to them. Um, seniority doesn't mean knowing everything. It never will because no one can know everything. Uh, and and in general, like if you're really bummed and you're really frustrated and you're not getting anywhere, take a break. Take a nap. Go for a walk. Have some water. Have a Kit Kat bar. Whatever it takes. Like <laughs> it, You don't realize, and I think developers sometimes lose sight of this, but you don't realize how much you get in your head when it's just you and your computer and a bug. Like mm-hmm. if the best thing you can do for yourself is to take a mental break, think about something completely unrelated, reset, walk back and look at it again. That being said, if you're in the middle of piecing something together and you don't you think you're going to lose your place of, you know, kind of the logic you were going through, that's a different story. But if you're just stuck and frustrated and annoyed walk away come Mm. back to it you'll have fresh eyes you'll be better i can't count the number of times where i've tried to force myself another hour to fix a bug because i think it's just going to be two more minutes and then i finally give up go home go to sleep and i solve it in the next two minutes the next morning like that's a thing so so kind of be realistic with yourself and you know what your body needs and what your brain needs Do you have advice for building that introspectiveness, that ability to evaluate what you need to do? Yeah, uh, I think some of it comes from time and experience. I think some of it is just learning yourself, whether in your personal life or in your professional life. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And I'm not perfect at this. I'm not saying that I am. I mean, there are definitely moments where I get frustrated. My coworkers will tell you that occasionally... I'll just put my fist to the desk and they know that something is going very, very wrong. (laughs) Um, uh, But in general, it's be aware of the fact that that's something that you want to do. Be Mm -hmm. listening to yourself, be paying attention to patterns. And over time, you have enough data points, you'll recognize, you know, what the issue is. My, My husband will joke constantly that I don't get hangry. You know how people get really mad when they're hungry? Mm-hmm. It's not a thing that happens to me. 
I get toddler cranky. If <laughs> I have not slept, I will get to temper tantrum levels. And I mean that quite literally. Um, and I know this about myself. And so I know that it is good for the rest of the universe if I get enough sleep. Mm -hmm. um, and he knows it's good for him if I get enough sleep. So just learning these things about yourself, it, it'll help you in all aspects of life. You can you can keep me from eating for, you know, significant periods of time and I'll I'll survive. But you tell me to take a red eye and then give a conference talk. I'm not sure how that's going to go. Mm hmm. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, at what point would you say you transitioned from a kind of individual contributor developer role into someone mentoring others? And you may still be writing code as like your primary job. But at this point, I feel like you spend a lot of time sharing uh, your thoughts with people less experienced than you. What did that shift look like? And when did that happen? Yeah, um, it's interesting. I don't I wouldn't say that it happened all at once. Um, I think I got to a point, even in my very first developer role, where the senior engineer would kind of look to me to implement patterns um, and and be happy with what I'd written. And we, it was us building our first, at that point, Angular One application, where previous projects had been work had been using struts. If anyone remembers that, mm -hmm. lovely <laughs> technology. Um, so I, at that time, because I was his kind of second in command on the Angular project, I, it was my job, no matter how junior I was to take all that we'd figured out and give that to the other teams that were now moving forward on Angular applications. Um, and, and that was kind of my first, okay, I need to teach others moment. Um, mm -hmm. when I got into my, my current company, we are a small team. We're, you know, 20 some people. And I was embedded with two other coworkers, three other coworkers at a company in their space full time. And we were the experts. We had architected the solution and we were implementing it. And it was up to me to kind of bring that company's engineering resources along for the ride with me and make sure that they understood what we were building and how we were building it. And it's it's all kind of evolved from there. Uh, the speaking started in 2017 because I wanted to see more women on stage. And there was a local conference that had a first year conference with a legacy systems focus, which was 100% of my experience up until mm -hmm. that point. Um, and so I said, oh, I can talk about that. And they shockingly accepted me. And I gave a 15-minute talk. And I've never been more terrified. Um, and then I gave a couple other talks and then um, I was facilitating a girls who code club because I wanted to give back to kind of the community and the next generation. And then the blogging started and the podcasts and the interviews and that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's, it's evolved naturally, but I think in general, I am an opinionated person. Anyone who follows me knows mm -hmm. this. Um, I'm an opinionated person and I've seen such a variety of things that consistently have um, kind of similar takeaways. And that interests me. And I, and I feel like people who have worked in the same company on the same product could potentially benefit from that perspective since it's, it's, a, unique, uh, it's a unique set of experiences for an engineer to have, if you ask me. So you mentioned that you stepped into the speaking and kind of mentorship leadership 
space because you had an interest in seeing more women involved in software engineering or at least more women on the stage. What pushed you to that decision? And it sounds like that was kind of difficult for you. So um, how did you become more acquainted with being in that on that stage and in that position? So it's funny, I didn't think it would be difficult for me, which is why I went and did it. Um, mm-hmm. I did musical theater as a kid. I was debate team captain. Like crowds don't scare me. Audiences don't scare me. I consider myself to have some level of stage presence. I was so terrified in that moment because it was the first time I was in a room full of people that I assumed were more expert than I was and that what I had to say wasn't going to be as valuable to them as I hoped it would be. And they wouldn't find me entertaining. They'd find me boring and they wouldn't understand what I was saying. And, you know, all of those fears that you have when you have an audience of complete unknowns. Mm -hmm. And I think after that experience and the positive feedback I got, there's a video of it. You can, if you want to search Lori Barth on YouTube, um, you can see my terrible, terrible slides, like really like (laughs) middle school PowerPoint theme slides (laughs) um, for tablecloth trick at DC full stack in 2017. It's, it's a sight to behold. Um, but people laughed and, and what I said was, was valuable. I learned a lot about, um, what slides should look like at that point. I learned a lot about kind of how to break down content for that type of audience. And I learned a lot about what those audiences look like. It's not consistent, but I found that more often than not, you're not talking to a room full of experts. You're Mm -hmm. talking to a room full of experts in 20 other things and they probably have never heard of what you're talking about and there's always something to be gained and even if they know exactly what you're talking about and they know everything about it there's no way you're going to explain it exactly the same way they understand it and there's no way you're going to cover exactly what they know and that different perspective is beneficial to everyone i've heard people say before that teaching something is always valuable even if it's a space where a lot of people are are talking because your specific approach to teaching or conveying ideas might speak to people that previous resources haven't. No question. Um, I, I, I would go even further and say the medium with which you teach things is interesting. So I did a talk. Um, I turned that into a blog post. I turned that blog post into a video. And all three of those are slightly different. The content is slightly different, but the general knowledge that I'm using and conveying is the same. And each one of those mediums and instructional styles is going to work for a different person. So a Mm -hmm. bunch of people then have access to that. And it's funny because I make videos, I make egghead instructional lessons. um, And I actually don't learn that well from videos. That's not Mm -hmm. a great medium for me, but I can't count the number of people who have said, oh, so nice to just watch you do it instead of read, you know, the snippet on, on your post. And I was like, great, that's the goal. That's awesome. (laughs) How did you find the, the mediums that worked for you as a creator and resonated the most with the audiences that you wanted to teach? Yeah. Um, so the speaking thing was I did my first talk and then I just kind of looked around the internet um, (laughs) for other places to submit. And I, in my first year, I ended up submitting to two conferences that have kind of changed my experience in that space. 
Um, I was a speaker at the very first ever Lead Dev Austin, um, which mm-hmm. was way punching above my weight at the time. <laughs> I had no idea. And I met some incredible, incredible people there who said, you should submit here and you should submit three talks so they have things to choose from. And you know, you should send them the videos of you speaking and you should have a personal website and you should have Twitter, which I didn't have, um, mm-hmm. and all of these things. So that was super beneficial. And the Kansas City Developer Conference is kind of the other one. Um, Jeff Strauss likes to tell the story. He's one of the organizers there. But uh, I actually didn't get in to that conference. I was mm-hmm. not accepted. And they I had followed both of them on Twitter because kind of early days, I figure conference organizers will notice when I like follow them on Twitter. I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) Um, And so Jonathan Mills, who's the other organizer posted, acceptances are out. We had 900 amazing submissions. And I commented on that and I said, bummed to not be there, but wow, 900 submissions. I feel better because I had Mm -hmm. no idea that many people submitted. Mm -hmm. And Jeff or John, I can't remember which, uh, looked up who I was in their system and and they said, oh, human skills and JavaScript were really popular tracks this year, but you should definitely submit next year. And I responded, I was like, I mean, if the bosses tell me I have to, then I definitely will. Mm-hmm. Um, and that stuck in their brains and they had a couple cancellations and they contacted me and they said, hey, do you still want to come out to Kansas City? Do you want to speak? Mm. And that interaction and the community there and the people who go to that conference have just given me opportunities in so many directions and passed along CFPs. Shout out to Jennifer Wadella and Casey Witts and and all of those people. I mean, just really an awesome community. So, so mm-hmm. those two on the speaking front. Um, on the blogging front, I was blogging for our company site. I still do. Um, and we cross post those to dev too, um, because I saw that a lot through Twitter. Ali Spittle was really, um, she lives in the DC area. So she was really helpful in kind of explaining that whole community to me. Um, and then Joel from Egghead contacted me and said, Hey, do you want to do some videos for us? And I said, sure, mm-hmm. I'll give it a try. And, <laughs> and so opportunities come from opportunities and you, you get people saying, hey, we'll walk you through how to do this. We think you have something relevant to share. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's wonderful. I, I can't say enough about the content creator community in kind of all mediums. They're incredibly supportive and helpful and uh, generous with their time. Mm-hmm. Would you suggest that the average technologist try creating content or do you think it's something that it's better if you feel motivated to do it and you're not not just the average programmer so i'm of split mind on that i think the best way to learn things is to try and teach them to someone else so Mm -hmm. yes i would absolutely recommend it but it's it's also not something everyone has the time or energy to do and if you're going to do it and you you know write a blog post when the spirit moves you or when you're actively learning something and you don't touch it again for months, that's okay. Like you don't have to be a constant content creator. You don't Mm -hmm. have to follow a specific schedule. You don't have to have goals for yourself. You can just do it as the spirit moves you if that's what you want to do. So I I would recommend it. I think it's, it's incredibly valuable and beneficial both to the people who create the content and to the community that benefits from it. But also don't 
don't compare yourself to others and don't think that you have to match someone else's output. The thing I would Mm -hmm. say to people is early on, I was trying to do a post a week or so. Um, and, and I didn't do that. And then my company said, Hey, uh, actually a post a week would be great. And we'll give you the time to do it. That's Mm -hmm. how I'm able to write as much as I write because that's part of my work. That's part of my job. That's part of my built in day now. So, um, don't see people who are kind of making a million things and assume that, you know, they're faster than you or they're working harder than you. It may be true, but it may also not be true. Hmm. Do you have advice for people that want to be in that space, but don't feel like they have the employer support or maybe, uh, did you have a specific conversation with your, your team that helped you to get that support? Yeah, so they were they were supportive of the speaking early on, and then uh, it kind of blew up. And they were like, "Okay, Lori, you're you're grounded for a period of time. We need you in the office." <laughs> um, and I said, "Okay, fine." And then we had a larger conversation. And I, when I was grounded, I mean, they didn't ground me specifically, but it was kind of a conversation about balancing priorities. I started mm-hmm. doing a lot of the blogging and I was still taking a lot of my personal time to do all this stuff. And they were like, okay, this is something you really want to do. This is something uh, you find super valuable and uh, and you enjoy doing. And I said, yeah. And so my boss, Frank, who is a wonderful human, um, said, okay, we can run with this. We can make this work. Um, we're going to make this, you know, 50% of your time now. Um, and sometimes it's 80% of my time. and sometimes it's 20% of my time. It kind of, it, it ebbs and flows as all things do. But uh, I had that conversation and I am very, very lucky. And I recognize that I'm lucky that 10 Mile is a company that cares about me as an individual and my career trajectory in general, whether it's, you know, working there or anywhere else in the future, because they know, um, they know me as a person and and they like me as a person. Um, I know that's not always the case in other companies. And so I think it is a hard conversation. And I, I recognize that I've had a very, um, lovely time of it and that's not true for everyone. So I think always have the conversation, um, how it goes and what to do if it goes poorly. I'm probably not the best person to answer, but I think it's always worth having that conversation. So, Lori, uh, a question I ask everyone who I interview to humanize them and kind of uh, uh, for people who are listening, make them more relatable. Would you mind sharing something that you consider yourself to be bad at? Just one thing. I've got a whole list. <laughs> um, sure. Uh, so we'll do we'll do one personality thing and we'll do one um, one technical thing. So I am not a patient person. Mm-hmm. Just not. My dad will say I am the least patient person he has ever met. And that has really great career benefits and sometimes not great career benefits. I am a very driven person as a result. But also, if things take a long time, aka government bureaucracy, I get super frustrated. Um, from a technical perspective, I am not a good designer. Mm-hmm. Um, I can implement CSS and I've gotten a lot better at that in recent years and I enjoy it. But if you want me to set up a page and make it look aesthetically pleasing, 
it's going to look a little 90s. And by a little, I mean a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, that is not where my skill set lies. And I've been very, very grateful for the wonderful designers that I've worked with over the years who just have have amazing uh, visualization and creativity. And I am in awe, in awe of what they can do. So do you try to find ways to improve upon that skill set? Or do you just kind of double down on things you know you're good at? I'm trying to do some code pen challenges, um, and I've been doing the sketch note challenge that David Neal is running, which is a little more a little more uh, artist based, obviously, but it's still a little bit designy. Um, for me, it's I can always improve it slightly, but it's also one of those areas where I recognize that I'm better off turning to an expert, and mm-hmm. I can maybe tweak a box here or there and say that doesn't look quite right in an existing layout. But if you give me a blank page and say design this home page maybe there's someone who who would be better suited for that task and I'm going to go and find them. If you had to distill your personality into a handful of traits that make you good at what you do, do you have any idea what those would be? Um, that's an interesting one. Uh, yeah, so I'd say I'm, I'm a good writer, which has been very beneficial. Mm-hmm. I'm a very observant person, especially of uh, kind of other people and their emotions and tensions. And that's been incredibly helpful as a consultant. Um, and I like puzzles and that's 99.9% of the reason that I can handle, uh, the constant frustration of being a developer because I find Mm -hmm. it joyful, like a weirdo. (laughs) Hmm. Those are probably the top three. How would you advise someone build well, let's start with the the writing. How how would you advise someone to grow that skill? Yeah, so I have been writing um, in in a big way for many many years. Uh, I went to a high school that had um, it prided itself on how mu- many papers they made us write. I went to mm-hmm. a liberal arts college, and one of my majors was government, and so I wrote. <laughs> Lots and lots and lots of papers. Um, And I had a Bachelor of Arts in Mathematics, which came up earlier. So I did a lot of um, LaTeX proof-based write-ups and problem sets. And so I have been writing both technically and kind of just informally for my entire life. Um, and, And I would say it's all about practice. There are types of writing that I am not particularly good at. I am not good at poetry. Um, I probably can't write a novel or that wouldn't, I would have to work really hard to write a novel, Mm -hmm. but writing in terms of conversational style, um, conveying information, making an argument, all of those things are things I've had decades of practice with. Um, and you'll, you'll learn kind of your voice and you'll learn to pay attention to your audience and try and change your voice to match that audience within reason. But I would say most of the skills for the type of writing I do now come from education um, and teaching and mentoring because as critical as it is to write well in those environments, it's also important to make sure you're paying attention to what information you include and kind mm-hmm. of what level the people you're trying to um, talk to currently live at. Mm-hmm. So uh, another one of those traits you mentioned, that kind of comfort being frustrated or being 
comfort with being uncomfortable, I guess. Um, how, how did you build that? And was that something that you came to technology with or something that you've gotten better at? I've definitely gotten better at that. Um, comfort with being uncomfortable is something I've never been good at uh, because for the most part, things were always kind of quick and easy for me in school. Um, and I'm very, I'm very grateful for th- whatever those genetics are. Um, <laughs> has nothing mm-hmm. to do with me. But uh, things were always kind of easy when I was in school. And so when I got into software development and I had to struggle a little bit um, in certain areas, I got better at recognizing my mini wins, as it were. So I joke all the time that when I was in school, I was Hermione Granger. And I had my hand up in the air and I was a grade grub and all of that. And I mean, it's not a flattering picture, but it's accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I just translated that to Jira tickets in the modern era. <laughs> when I can check that off, you know, that's my A plus for the day if it doesn't come back with bugs. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's those mini wins. I, you know got that button to show up and have the hover state that I wanted. Okay, that's a win. Now I'm going to do this other piece. And that a big part of that is being able to break things down into really minute tasks. Even if you're not documenting them that way, if it's a bigger ticket or something else, that's that's fine. But in your own brain, if you're breaking things down into really discrete tasks and saying, okay, now I got this working. Now that I know this is working, I can do the next tiny little piece. You'll continual, you'll, you will continually feel like you're making forward progress. Um, and if you think about it, that also helps with things like testing and um, kind of giving status updates and all these other things. It's like a very well-rounded skill to have. Um, mm-hmm. And it helps you deal with that constant frustration because it's constant front frustration with little exclamations of, yay, I did it. <laughs> Lori, before we wrap up, if people want to learn more about you, where should they go? So I have my website, which is lauriontech.com. And you can also access it because I bought this URL yesterday. Whoops. Thanks, Twitter, for the influence. <laughs> um, lauriontech.dev. Um, you'll see the places that I'll be speaking. Um, you'll have links to all my blog posts. You have links to all my egghead lessons. Um, and, and I'm on Twitter at Lorian tech. So those are kind of the main places to find me. Um, and if you want to talk to me or ask me a question, shoot me a message. Cool. Thank you for sharing your experience and being open, Lori. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to devpath.fm. Want to ask a question? Send an email to jacob at devpath.fm.